you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What a good word that is. Uh, we're going to look at that together now. But as we do, let's, let's pray and let's ask that God would, would come down by His Spirit and stir up that word into our hearts to bear the fruit that He wants. So let's pray. Father, we give you praise and thanks for your word. We give you praise and thanks for your word that teaches, rebukes, guides, encourages us. We thank you above all for your word made flesh, Jesus, our Savior. And for his name, we pray now that as we together come and bow our hearts before his word, that our hearts might turn upwards like flowers opening to the sun and give praise to our King. Do it now, Lord, we pray. In the name of Jesus and God's people said a big loud voice, Amen, Amen. Well, it was February 1519. General Hernando Cortez stood on the shores of what is today Mexico. With him, he had 600 Spanish soldiers. 
a tiny amount pitted against the, the might of the Aztec Empire. They come to win the prize of, of gold and glory, but as they stood on the beach, the men were restless. They were afraid of the future. They were discouraged. And why wouldn't they be? They were setting out on a journey which seemed impossible. They were setting out on a journey which would probably result in the end of their lives. The odds against them were overwhelming. Well, last week we began our journey in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, We saw the Apostle Peter writing to these new Christians in these new churches into what today is Turkey. And these new Christians were hurting. They felt small. They felt misunderstood and maligned. They felt under great pressure. And Peter reminded them last week, if you weren't here, let me remind you who they were. Who are you? And Peter responds, you are elect exiles. You're chosen by God. You're elect, but you're also journeying through a world that you don't belong. He says, that is is who you are. And the reason that they are elect exiles and able to be chosen by God, he, he speaks of it over and over and over in that first beginning to our letter we heard last week. And we sang about it. It's about the grace of God. It's God coming in his goodness and kindness. Like verse 3, it says, according to his great mercy, according to his grace, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In many ways, those first Christians in Turkey and us today, we could not be more different than Hernando Cortez and his conquistadors. We could not be more different. They came to win an earthly kingdom by bloodshed and violence, getting glory and gold. We journey as exiles through the world towards a heavenly kingdom. We could not be more different. But there is some similarities. Like those conquistadors long ago, we feel under pressure. We feel outnumbered. We feel that the odds against us are overwhelming. Like them, we can feel discouraged. We can be restless. But there is an even greater similarity than that. And it's this. As the men were murmuring and grumbling on the beach, suddenly someone shouted, the ships are on fire. And they were indeed on fire. General Cortes himself had given the order, the famous order, burn the ships. He'd burnt the ships because he wanted his men to know that they were on a journey and that there was no way back and they needed to now live in the light of the fact of where they were going, not where they would come from or where they may seek to go back to. Burn the ships. Peter has uh, told these exiles in the first opening part of the letter, he's told them, this is who you are. You're children of grace. You're saved by God through the resurrection of Jesus. This is where you're going. And now, in a sense, in this next part of his letter, he says, now burn the ships. This is how it happened. This is how you're saved. Now live like it. And in these, uh, the, these passages we just heard read, Peter's going to give us four injunctions, four commandments, four um, pieces of advice, more than advice though, four commandments really. This is what it looks like. You've burnt the ships, 
Now, this is what it looks like. Four things, and, and in the original Greek, they all begin with R. No, they don't. I tried to come up with um, something to help us remember. So we're going to look at four things that Peter tells us, all of them beginning with the letter R. And the first one is a double header. Number one, reach for the revelation to us. In the original language, um, this commandment to reach, uh, or so put your hope fully in the hope that is going to be revealed to you on the grace that's going to be revealed to you on the day of Jesus Christ, reach for it fully. That is the big command which grammatically guides the rest of this passage. The big point that Peter is making is reach for the hope that is ahead of you. Hope fully in it. Reach for it fully. Verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully. Um, Why did Cortez burn the ships? Pretty extreme gesture, wasn't it? Because he says, he said to his troops, you need to focus on what is ahead of you, the hope that is ahead of you, the, the gold and the glory and the conquest. You need to focus on that with everything. Forget that. The ships are burnt. You've now got no choice. And Peter says to us this morning in this second part of his letter, as you live in the light of God's grace, you need to fix your hope fully on it. Fix your hope fully on it. And he says it will be the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You say, hang on, I thought we already got grace. Isn't that what we're singing about? That that we're born again to a new and living hope by the grace of God through the resurrection of Jesus. Peter seems to be saying that there's more grace to be revealed to you. Absolutely he is. And that is good news. I'll tell you why it's good news. Because you and I need more grace, don't we? You and I need to grow in the likeness of Jesus. And all of us, have got room to grow. Is that not true? I'd ask and say, who thinks they're already arrived? Me. And if you're married, then your wife is going, oh, you <laughs> you have, you know you haven't arrived. Um, I just had this little thing a couple of weeks ago, and it just reminded me, I'd had a good prayer time in the morning, and it was, it was the day off, and, and I was taking the kids on a bike ride, and we were riding down towards uh, the Barwon River, and um, this old guy in his car was bipping the horn because the kids were taking a little while to get across the road. And, and I was like, yeah, just, just wait, just wait. And then he wound down his window and gave me a surf. And I was like, and I, and I, and I responded, you know, like, you know, praying for my enemies and graciously. And no, I just, in that moment, in that moment, I, I just, I let him have it. No foul language, but pretty close. I, I just, it just came out of me. And, and afterwards, the kid said, Dad, that was a bit of an overreaction. I said, yeah, but he, he had no right to do that. And I said, yeah, but, but you really lost it. I was like, I know, I know. And that is a small thing, perhaps. But all of us have those areas where, where it says, set your hope fully on the grace that is going to be brought to you on the day of the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's more grace coming, and it's good news. Because the Bible says, when we see him, we'll be like him. And at the moment, we bear a family resemblance, but it's certainly not that strong. But there will come a day when the grace that is brought to us will make that fully. We will be like him. 
It's wonderful news. And, and the word, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ is, is the word um, in the Greek, it's apocalypso. It, it's a word we get apocalypse from, but it doesn't mean the disaster of the day of Jesus Christ. It means the revealing of what was hidden, what couldn't be seen. That is coming. That revealing is coming. And Peter says, set your hope fully on it. There's more grace coming. But I wonder why did he need to write that? Why did he need to urge us to set our hope, our eyes fully on the grace that will be revealed? Set our hope fully on that. Why do you think he needed to write that? (laughs) Yes, we're sinners and we don't do it, do we? Thank you, Michael. We don't do it. He needed to write it to those first Christians because they were tempted not to set their hope fully on that day, but obviously to set their hope partly on that day and partly on something else. And in many areas of life, that's good advice, isn't it? If you've dallied in the share market, you know that it is very unwise to set your hope fully on one particular share. Uh, my first experience in the, the share market was a case in point. Um, some soldiers were talking together, and they were talking about this company called Pazminko. It had gone down by 300% in the last months, couldn't go down any further, and this was like just money hanging on the tree. You know, put your money in there, because this, this, play, this company is going to boom. And I was like, oh boy, it sounds pretty impressive. And so I put, put, put my hope in Pazminko as the only company I held shares in, and a few months later, it went bankrupt. I lost every cent that I put into that company. And, and so the advice that we get is good, diversify. You know, d- d- don't just put it all in one company, spread it across. If that one goes bankrupt, this one might go well and you might do all right. Good advice in the share market, terrible advice spiritually. Terrible advice. Never does the scripture say, put your hope in God and in other things. It says you, you actually can't do it. You can pretend that you can hope a bit here and a bit there. You can have a bet each way. But, but, but Jesus himself, over and over again, put your hope in him, in me, trust in me, believe in me, and the other things you, you let go. God will look after those things. You hope in me. And Peter is saying to those Christians, fix your hope fully on the grace that is going to be brought to you on the day of Jesus Christ. Don't have a bet each way. And, and the tragedy, I think, of Christian faith today and always, I think, has been that we are always inclined to have a bet both ways. And in many parts of the world today, it looks like this. You come together on Sunday and you, you praise God and you're in the Christian community and you take communion and it all looks good. And then throughout the week, you worship your ancestors at home or you, you worship the pagan gods of, of your culture. You, you have a bet both ways. Now, for some of us, that, that may be a temptation that is, that is alive in our lives, but for most of us, it's unlikely that we will worship our ancestors or pagan gods during this week ahead, isn't it? I, I think it is. But what, if, if, what, what are we likely, though, to put our hope in? It's so obvious, I don't even really need to say it, but I will say it. Money. Isn't that, money says to us, trust in me. Have your Christianity and things, that's really good. You know, have Jesus, but you've got to hang on to me too because I can, I can give you security. 
I can give you something for a rainy day. I can provide for you the enjoyment that you really want. I can, I can be passed on to the next generation as well. I really matter. So, so you, you, yes, go after Jesus, but remember, I'm the escape ship as well if everything goes bad with your faith. So just spread it a little bit across. So, so easy for us to do in the West and so spiritually devastating. Peter says to these first Christians, fix your hope fully. Burn the ships. And Peter, we know, had very little time for those like Jesus, for those who would try to worship God and money. This is what Peter said in Acts chapter 8, verse 20. And we should listen to these words. May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Peter says, like Jesus says, you can't love God and money, you're going to love one or the other. So make your choice. Burn the ships. Do you love God or do you love money? Are you saved by the grace of Jesus and you're looking forward to it fully being revealed or are you really living for money? It's almost as if saying, well, you can't have both. Choose one. If you think money is going to really save you, then, then live for that. You can't have a bet both ways. And yet we are so tempted to do it day by day. Peter says, burn the ships. And you, and you ask, okay, Andrew, tell me practically, how do I know if I've burned the ships? Because I need money to live. You do. I, I should save money for a rainy day. You should. Those are good things. I've, I don't think for very few of us is, would Peter say, burning the ship means selling everything that you have and making yourself one of the poor. Give it to the poor and make yourself one of them. That's very rarely what he asks us to do. But he asks us to set our hopes or he commands us fully on the grace that has been revealed to us. So, so how does that figure in our society with money? And I think the answer is, if you could imagine a heavenly accountant looking over your finances at tax time, right? Imagine that. And then got, you know, Jesus sends an angel who, who runs through you. It's not an audit. It's he's running through your tax affairs. It's an audit from heaven. And he runs through your affairs. And, and I think the answer would be that it would be very quickly apparent where you really fix your hope by the way that you use your money. So it's possible to say, I hope fully in God, but your finances might reveal otherwise. Very rarely, I think, is it saying give everything, but what it is saying is that when we use our money, if we use it in a way that shows us where our hope fully rests, which is in Jesus, we'll be radically generous to others, be radically generous to those who are in need, to the poor, to those who, who, who don't have enough, we, we'll share generously, we'll be radically generous in the way that we respond to God's mission and God's church. The way we use our money is the key indicator of our actual faith where it rests. Speak silently a truth, no matter what our lips might confess. Is your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed to you, brought to you on the day of Jesus? Fix your eyes on that. Hope in it fully. Practically let it guide your life in money and every other way. 
Firstly, focus, fix your eyes on Jesus. Secondly, ready your minds for action. Verse one, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Uh, Cortez men, as they stood on that beach and watched their ships burning, as the smoke rose up, they would have been tightening their armor, sharpening their swords, going forward into the battles that lay ahead of them. When uh, Peter writes to us, he says, fix your minds fully on the grace will be revealed. Reach for that. And then he says, <laughs> how, how do we, we do that? We ready our minds for action. The word ready your minds in the original is, is one that the idiom doesn't really work anymore. It, anyone knows what it is? It's actually gird up the loins of your mind. <laughs> which is kind of a weird way of putting it. But what it meant was, in that culture, if you were getting ready to run, and, and you tried to run with your robes around your ankles, you were likely to come head first. So you, had, you girded up your loins, you lifted up your, 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 your garment, and then you got ready to run. And uh, Peter's saying, ready your minds in the same way. Gird up the loins of your mind. And then he says, and this is the way that you do it, by being sober-minded, being sober Minded. Now, we often think, well, that refers to alcohol. So the, how, do we, how do we reach for the revelation? Uh, by reading our minds, well, we don't get drunk. And that's absolutely true. Uh, drunkenness is the opposite to having a sober mind, isn't it? Uh, I imagine we've all seen what happens when someone becomes drunk. Uh, how the, it's the opposite of sober-mindedness. They believe delusions. You know, their inhibitions all fly away. They imagine other things. Until the next morning, it all comes crashing back in. So drunkenness is, alcohol is clearly the opposite of sober-mindedness, but it's not the only part of sober-mindedness at all. It's not only about alcohol. Um, one commentator on this text, a guy called Schreiner, he says this. It's telling. There is a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God, that is anesthetized by the attractions of the world. When people are lulled into such drowsiness, they lose sight of Christ's future revelation of himself and concentrate only on fulfilling their earthly desires. Uh, generations of Christians throughout the ages have realized the importance of a daily rhythm of sober-mindedness. They've realized the importance throughout the millennia of things like prayer, of of corporate worship, coming together as a church to worship, of, of um, the discipline, other disciplines at the times like, like fasting, um, coming together to take the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of communion, Th those kind of things that, that they've been fixing their eyes or re reaching for the, for the revelation of the grace and reading their minds and the sober-mindedness includes these things. Very often today, it seems that, that in our generation, we may still do these haphazardly, but our day-to-day -day existence is not sober-minded. And what I mean by that is, is that we can very often soak in something like Netflix. I'm not saying Netflix is bad, but we can soak in that. We can, we can soak in the pop culture around us. Um, we can soak in these kind of things in, in TV and all these other stuff, which is not very often sober-minded. Uh, we can not be drunk, but we can actually be drinking the liquor 
of the world and not the Holy Spirit. And to do that over a period of time makes it very hard to be sober-minded because we, we have this haphazard practice of the rhythms of grace, but then we have a daily feeding or a daily drinking at the wells of the world. And the result is not hard to understand why it happens because we are feeding ourselves in something that is not sober-minded. I say again, we're not to withdraw from the world. Jesus never says that, but as God's people in the world, we're elect and we are exiles, we're journeying through the world, we cannot be having the same diet as the world does or we will have the same results as the world has. So fix your eyes or reach for the revelation of grace. Ready your minds by being sober-minded. And, and if that's what it doesn't look like, you know, um, drinking the same liquor as everyone else does, what does it look like? P Peter, in verse 23 to 25, tells us, he says, listen to this, he says, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Peter says, how have you come into your faith? It's not by the liquor of the world that makes you drunk, it's by, it's by the living word of God, the imperishable Seed. And he says, all flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So these rhythms of grace, of gathering together, of worship and of prayer and of the other disciplines must be centered on feeding ourselves on the word of God. If we are indeed to be readying our minds, we cannot ready our minds without reading the word of God, without soaking in it, without drinking from it. Ready your minds for action, Peter says. Sober-minded. Now, thirdly, reorient your behavior. So, reach for the revelation of Jesus. Ready your minds for action. Now, thirdly, reorient your behavior. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Remember who Peter's writing to? Very few of these new Christians came from the Jewish background. Most of them came from a culture which is actually very similar to ours. And you say, no. We're the only, no one would have had the passions of ignorance in their culture like we have in ours. And the answer is, absolutely, they have. Just go to Pompeii and look at some of the murals on the walls in Pompeii. You'll get an idea of what was very common practice in the Roman world. These Christians had come from a culture where pedophilia, uh, where adultery, where homosexuality, where fornication, where all kinds of sexual sins, at least for men, were accepted and even encouraged. And, and Peter says that to them, don't live in the passions of your former ignorance. Everyone used to live like that, but don't do it any more. And, and when, when, when the knowledge, the light of God's life shines in and the ignorance is dispelled, he's saying you live differently. You reorient your behavior. You don't live like you used to. Now, it doesn't mean that those desires are not still present. Those old habits have not got a habit of resurfacing. If, if it was true that when you became a Christian, you never had to 
worry about reorienting your behavior, it all happened naturally. Peter wouldn't have needed to bother writing it. He needed to write it because the first Christians were struggling with it. And we are too, aren't we? The passions of our former ignorance, when we come into the light of Christ and and we're born again by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we've got a new hope, it doesn't just mean that all of our passions automatically disappear. Just ask any Christian who is saved by God's grace and still battles pornography. They don't automatically disappear. We have to reorient our behavior. It's not a passive thing. It's not like saying we sang grace and grace alone. Absolutely. Reorienting our behavior is never going to save us. Having a perfect life free from the passions of the flesh, if we could ever do that, is not going to somehow make us acceptable in God's sight. We're all falling short. Only grace saves us, but never does it say in the Scriptures that grace equals passivity. Grace equals laziness. It's constant in Scriptures. Peter goes, you've been saved by this, now live like this and reorient your behavior. There's an effort involved. And it's a very important effort. Peter says that we are doing it like obedient children. Did you hear that? Like obedient children. That's how we are to to approach the reorienting of a behavior. Our Father tells us to, so we do it as obedient children. And in verse 15, um, it becomes even more clear. Listen to this. But as he who has called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Those are beautiful but terrible words, aren't they? Be holy as I am holy. How is God holy? Is it... Is God somehow involved in so many of the activities of our our culture that they conduct out of ignorance? The sexual passions, the craving for material, is, is this who God is? Peter's saying, no, be holy as God is holy. The way that we reorient our behavior is to actually reorient ourselves into who God is. That is the pattern for our holiness. Because and, and it's no laughing matter, it's no joke, because we, we want to say we want to know Jesus and we want to make Jesus known. If you and I are not reorienting our behavior, then we are actually smearing mud across the name of the God who saved us. It's a big deal. We are holy because He is holy. There's an unrelenting, beautiful, pure holiness in our God. And we are to respond as his people with that same holiness. We must reorient our behavior, Peter says. If we don't, we are terrible. We are elect and chosen exiles in this world, but we give a terrible representation of the one who has chosen us and the place where we are going. And then he says, verse 17, and if you call on him as a father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. These are words which uh, in the modern evangelical church we're not too comfortable with, are we? Conduct yourself with fear. But they're there. 
Peter says to this new church, as you seek to be holy like I am holy, as you reorient your behavior in the light of what God has done, walk in fear because God is a father who judges impartially. Walk in fear. God is our judge. His judgment is coming. And then he flips it in verse 18. He says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In the first century context, you could redeem someone from slavery if you had enough money. You could, you could actually buy them out of slavery. It still happened today in parts of the world with sex slavery and other stuff. You, could, you can buy people out of it by the payment. And, and that was a familiar concept. You could be purchased from slavery. And Peter says, you were purchased from your slavery, not by silver and gold. That perishes. That's useless. You were purchased by the blood of a lamb. You were purchased by the death of Jesus Christ. That is what bought you. And the implication is, so how could you go back to the passions of your former life? He is perfect, sprinkled, his blood sprinkled over you. You cannot go back to that. You've been redeemed for something far better. So reorient your behavior. Now, there's a balance here, isn't there? God is holy and he is terrifying. He is loving and he is gentle. God is our Father. He's also our judge. He's tender and terrible at the same time. And Peter would say to those early Christians what he says to us, if we get either of those out of whack, we have a reorienting of our life, which is, becomes twisted. If we only focus on God as our Father, we only say, well, he, he won't really care because he loves me. He's my dad. He just loves me, and, and I can really do whatever I want, and I don't really need to reorient my behavior if it's too difficult, because God's going to forgive me. You know, He loves me. It's grace and grace alone. And we end up with a, with a twisted idea and a, and a downplaying of the holiness of God and the importance of the way we live our lives. We use our bodies. And the other extreme, of course, is to go, no, God is all my judge. I can't think of him as a father. He's a judge. He's terrible. He's holy. He's coming in judgment on me and I've got to work hard and I've got to do more and I've got to reorient my behavior better and better because he's not going to be happy with me. And, and, the, and the result is a, as a miserable life in changed by slave. They're both wrong. Peter says to those Christians, they're both true. But you hold them in balance. God is your father and he is your judge. So live in fear. For Peter, God is to be more feared than anything in the universe. And he's also to be more loved. That's who God is. Now, reach for the revelation of Jesus. Ready your minds for action. Reorient your behavior. Now, lastly, remember that the result is love. Listen to this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, that's the purpose of purification in here, it seems, in 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Remember that the result must be love. Remember I said before that be holy as I am holy, that God, Peter is showing that we pattern our behavior on the character of God, that who God is, that is who we 
are to be, and God is pure and holy and unblemished. He, he is pure beyond imagining, but what is God more than anything else? How does God describe himself? God is love. Love is the very essence of God. So remember that, that as we reorient our behavior and as we ready our minds and as we reach for grace, the end result must be love. That is the only result. Anything else becomes the, gla- the clanging gong and the resounding symbol of 1 Corinthians. Love is the result because that's what God is. God is love within himself. Father, Son, and Spirit, always together in a perfect unity of love. God is love in His being, His love in creation, His love in salvation and sanctification. God is the pattern for our love, and we must love each other earnestly from a pure heart. Isn't that interesting? We could spend our whole life fighting sin, seeking purity, speaking against the sins of the age and the passions of the flesh and be loveless. Peter says, remember, love earnestly. Peter said, love for God earnestly. He says, you know, although we don't see him, we love him. You love him. The joy inexpressible, filled with glory. We heard that last week. We love God earnestly, but here in the context is we love one another earnestly. It's one reason I think I remember two years ago when the pandemic was coming, a lot of people were kind of spruiking, this is what we've always needed, pandemics, you know, because now we go digital and, and we, can, you know, we, can, we can go out into the world, and, and there's some truth in that. We, we, can, we can broaden the message to reach places we've never reached before, but as the pandemic continues, it becomes apparent that no matter how well you watch TV in your living room, and sorry guys, you might be doing it now, there's lots of reasons you might be, but it's not the same thing. You are not gathering together. There's not, there's not that love for one another that rubs up against one another. It's a different thing. It's much easier but it's not the same thing. And there needs to be in God's community and in our church a love that is growing, a love that is genuine, a, a, a love that is, that is overflowing, that if you, if you come into our community, you would go like, these people love each other. Jesus says, that's how they'll know that you're my disciples because you love one another. Love, we must always remember love is the end. A love that I spoke at a wedding yesterday, and it just every time, 1 Corinthians 13, a love, that, a love that wants what is good for the other person. It's not proud and boastful and arrogant and rude. It, it bears with one another. It perseveres. Love perseveres. It, it doesn't just get upset and, and I'm taking my bat and ball and going home. When someone says something or you get offended, or you, love perseveres. It commits. It continues. It deepens and thrives, and in so doing, as a church overflows with God, it patterns itself on who God is. God is love. Love is always the result. Now, let me conclude. Cortez uh, took Mexico. If you want an interesting military campaign, it was a ripper. Forget the ethics of what happened. Militarily, it was amazing. These 600 soldiers in 200 years overthrew the most powerful empire on the continent at that time, the Aztec Empire. As the ships burnt, 
The soldiers knew they had no turning back and they threw themselves into that campaign in a way that was extraordinarily. Jesus gave his body that we might be sprinkled with his blood and that we might live as elect exiles chasing after, reaching towards a far better kingdom than they sought, an eternal kingdom. But the truth is we reach for the grace that is the ours at the revelation of Jesus. We reach for it. We do that by readying our minds for action, being sober-minded, putting aside the materialism, the other things, chasing after that. We reorient our behavior. We're done with sin. And over it all, we remember that the result must be love. This is God's command to us today through the Apostle Peter. This is who you are. You're elect exiles. You're saved by grace through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now live like this. I know as I conclude that some of us go, I'm not living too well like this. You're in the right place. And God's word to you today comes to you full of grace, not condemnation, calling you back, maybe using this opportunity to reorient your behavior by fixing your eyes on who he is, letting God change you from the inside out. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.